first Russian I shook hands with had a smile on his face, said Mark Johnson, who scored two of the U.S. goals. I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. We beat the Russians. Of course, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. The Soviet Olympic hockey team was a worldwide powerhouse. It had been bulldozing the competition since 1964. The United States team was a tested but unseasoned group of college students. But as the clock ticked down toward the end of the third period and the Americans clung to a 4-3 lead, the defense continued to work and with 20 seconds, goalie Jim Craig saved yet another shot. After a scramble for the puck, Mark Johnson passed to Ken Morrow. The U.S. cleared with seven seconds left and the crowd counting down. And then... That was the miracle on ice. And this is Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. So if there's anything I regret about the Miracle on Ice, it's that I didn't get to watch it happen because I was two and a half years old and therefore don't remember it. But it's considered one of the most important sports moments of the 20th century and is a prime example of how the world of sports, much like the world of popular culture, can intersect with and even affect the politics of the day. And sports is what I'm going to be talking about on this episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries that is brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit and part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Tom Panneries, and in addition to my discussion of sports, I'll also be talking about the events of the end of the Cold War starting in September 1990 and ending that November. And I will also take a look at the socioeconomic changes that were brought to the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union during the late 80s and early 90s through the policies of perestroika and glasnost. Now, before I move into the events of the calendar, I should make a quick clarification, because at the end of last episode, I promised that Andrew Leyland was going to be on the show, and we were going to talk about James Bond. Well, we weren't able to get our schedules in sync, so I plan on talking about James Bond specifically from Russia with Love and The Spy Who Loved Me in a future episode. And I can't wait to share that with you uh, once Andy and I get to talk about it. So stay tuned for that one. But for now... We're going to head into the fall of 1990 and the events of September until November, and then I'm going to talk about sports, so I hope you enjoy this. So here's some history from September of 90 to November of 90. On September 2nd, Transnistria declares its independence from the Moldavian SSR. However, the declaration is not recognized by any government. 
This is an ongoing dispute in Moldova that at its height resulted in war in 1992. There have been negotiations on and off over the years to settle this dispute, and the most recent rumblings of conflict came in 2014 during the Crimean crisis. On September 9th, the U.S. President George H.W. Bush and Soviet President Gorbachev meet in Helsinki to discuss the Persian Gulf crisis. This, as I have mentioned in past episodes, is indicative of what would be a shift in U.S. foreign policy. Iraq had invaded Kuwait a little more than a month earlier, and Germany was reunifying. So the focus of the meeting was beyond what they had been during the height of the Cold War. Of course, as we get deeper into 1990, the United States will send troops into the Middle East as part of Operation Desert Shield, a military operation that would become Operation Desert Storm in early 1991. I'm probably going to get into that a little bit in a future episode, especially since I might think it might be worth looking at the Soviet Union's role in the conflict. On September 10th, the first Pizza Hut opens in the Soviet Union. And then on the 11th, the first Pizza Hut opens in the People's Republic of China, nearly three years after the first KFC opened there in 1987. On September 12th, the two German states and the four powers signed the Treaty of the Final Settlement with respect to Germany in Moscow, paving the way for German reunification. And if you want more on that, go back and listen to the first episode where I talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall. On September 24th, the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union grants Mikhail Gorbachev special powers for 18 months to secure the Soviet Union's transition to a market economy. On October 3rd, East Germany and West Germany reunify into a single Germany, which still exists today. On October 15th, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to lessen Cold War tensions and reform his nation. On October 27th, Nizhny Novgorod restores its official name from Gorky, Volga Federal District in Russia. On October 27th, the Supreme Soviet of the Kyrgyz SSR elects Askar Akayev, and I apologize for butchering all these Slavic names, as the Soviet's first, as the Republic's first president. November 7th, the final military parade to mark the anniversary of the great October Socialist Revolution takes place in the USSR. On November 14th, Germany and Poland signed a treaty confirming the border at the Oder-Nesse line. On November 17th, Soviet President Gorbachev proposes a radical restructuring of the Soviet government, including the creation of a federal council to be made up of the heads of the 15 Soviet republics. From November 19th to the 21st, the leaders of Canada, the United States, and 32 European states meet in Paris to formally end the mark of the Cold War. And then on November 21st, we have the Charter of Paris for a New Europe, This is essentially the peace treaty ending the Cold War, and it is an effort to capture the feelings of democracy and harmony that have overtaken Europe throughout the preceding couple of years. The preamble of the charter reads like this, a new era for democracy, peace, and unity. We, the heads of state or government in the states participating in the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, have assembled in Paris at a time of profound change in historic expectations. The era of confrontation and division in Europe has ended. We declare that henceforth our relations will be founded on respect and cooperation. Europe is liberating itself from the legacy of the past. The courage of men and women, the strength of the will of the peoples and the power of the ideas of the Helsinki Final Act have opened a new era of democracy, peace, and unity in Europe. 
Ours is a time for fulfilling the hopes and expectations of our peoples have cherished for decades. Steadfast commitment to democracy based on human rights and fundamental freedoms. Prosperity through economic liberty and social justice. And equal security for all our countries. The Charter then goes on to say that they will follow the ten principles of the Helsinki Final Act, which were part of the Helsinki Accords that were signed in 1975 at the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe. This is during the period of detente, one that would end at the conclusion of the 70s. That's something I'll get into in my second segment of this episode. Those ten principles, by the way, are 1. Sovereign equality, respect for the rights inherent in sovereignty. 2. Refraining from threat or use of force. 3. Inviolability of frontiers. 4. Territorial integrity of states. 5. Peaceful settlement of disputes. 6. Non-intervention in eternal affairs. 7. Respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, including the freedom of thought, conscience, and religion or belief. 8. Equal rights and self-determination of peoples. 9. Cooperation among states. 10. Fulfillment in good faith or obligations under international law. And I'm going to go read right from the United States uh, State Department's website about the Helsinki Final Act because they have a very solid rundown of what it was and how it was received. The Helsinki Final Act dealt with a variety of issues delivered into four, quote, baskets. The first basket included 10 principles covering political and military issues, territorial integrity, the definition of borders, peaceful settlement of disputes, and the implementation of confidence-building measures between opposing militaries. The second basket focused on economic issues like trade and scientific cooperation. The third basket emphasized human rights, including freedom of emigration and reunification of families divided by international borders, cultural exchanges, and freedom of the press. Finally, the fourth basket formalized the details for follow-up meetings and implementation procedures. The CSCE held further meetings in Belgrade in 1977-1978, Madrid in 1980-83, and Vienna from 86-89. Although initially unpopular in the West, the Helsinki Final Act proved important at the end of the Cold War. Some activists opposed the Western concession on boundaries that resulted in a formal acceptance of the Soviet annexation of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, effectively acknowledged the Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. In spite of such criticism, the third basket on human rights and freedoms ultimately proved to be important to dissidents in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. To allow the progress of the USSR in implementing the human rights stipulations established in the Act, human rights activists set up Helsinki monitoring groups in the Soviet Union and across Europe. These groups tracked violations of the Act and drew international attention to human rights violations. Furthermore, the Belgrade follow-up meeting introduced a review process to track violators of the Helsinki Final Act and to hold them accountable. Together, these measures enable dissidents to act and speak more openly than would otherwise have been possible. The Helsinki process, including the review meetings, led to greater cooperation between Eastern and Western Europe. Representatives from non-aligned countries acted as intermediaries, helping to broker deals between members of NATO and the Warsaw Pact. The Vienna Review Meeting introduced recognition of the rights of immigration and religious freedom, which helped to open ties between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. In addition, the Vienna Meetings launched a new series of CSCE conferences on the human dimension that took place concurrently with and contributed to widespread political and social changes in Europe. 
These shifts helped bring an end to the Soviet dominance in Eastern Europe and the end of the Cold War. Finally, two last items. On November 25th, Lech Wałęsa and Stanislaw Tymiński win the first round of the first Polish presidential election. And on November 29th, Prime Minister of Bulgaria Andrei Lukinov and his government of former communists resign under pressure from strikes and street protests. So what I want to focus on for the longer portion of my first segment was something I briefly mentioned in the list I just went through, and that's Pizza Hut. Okay, it's not Pizza Hut per se, but if there's anything that I remember from the very end of the Cold War, it was the way that things were un- that were uniquely Western or iconically American were making their way into the Soviet bloc. I'm obviously too young to remember Nikita Khrushchev's visiting Disneyland back in the 50s, or the Apollo-Soyuz hookup in the 1970s, even though I've seen the model of the conjoined capsules at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., So when I think of the U.S. and the USSR, I think of McDonald's and Pizza Hut opening up in Moscow. I think of Billy Joel's Russia tour. I think of the Moscow Music Festival. And I also think of how a contingent of students from my local high school went to the Soviet Union in 1989 and came and spoke to my gifted and talented class about how the Russian kids they met loved American music and Levi's blue jeans. But how did we get to that point? Well... That can be explained using two words that anyone with a passing knowledge of the Cold War in the 1980s absolutely knows, and those are perestroika and glasnost. Perestroika was a series of economic reforms in the Soviet Union, most of which were geared toward introducing market economy principles to the country, while glasnost was a more cultural and political opening, especially an ease of tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States. One of the most radical changes that Soviet Premier Gorbachev instituted through perestroika was in 1988, when the party enacted the Law of Cooperatives. This was a series of rules and reforms regarding what organizations could operate as an industry. Prior to this, after the end of Vladimir Lenin's new economic policy, private industry was banned within the Soviet Union, and all of the industry became state-owned. So what Gorbachev does here is reintroduce capitalism, in a sense, to a country that had not seen it for the better part of 60 years. The law did not include a number of very high taxes at first, but was eventually revised because the taxes were seen as too steep to promote economic development, which was its mission, as stated at the end of its first section. And that reads, quote, The activity of cooperatives, their high labor productivity, and their remuneration system are designed to give an incentive to the development of economic competition and competitiveness in the market for goods, jobs, and services, both among cooperatives and between cooperatives on the one hand, and the state enterprises and organizations on the other hand, and to promote the improvement of the efficiency of economic management in every possible way. What this led to, of course, was more free enterprise within the USSR, and two companies that came around as a result of the perestroika policies to eventually become two of current-day Russia's most important employers are Gazprom, which is the world's largest natural gas company, and that was formed in 1989 when the Soviet natural gas utility was privatized, and Luke Oil, one of the world's largest oil companies, which was formed in 1991 with the merging of three local companies in Siberia. Of course, the most famous effect of these economic and cultural reforms had to do with what the Soviets were able to import in 1990 from America, and that was fast food and entertainment. McDonald's and Pizza Hut both opened in Moscow in 1990, with the McDonald's restaurant opening first on January 31st in Pushkin Square. 
The day it opened, there was a line of 30,000 visitors, and its opening made headlines across the world. The importance was definitely noted at the time, and its impact has been recognized as well. In a Washington Post article from January 3rd, 31st, 2020, Mikhail Kostin, a Moscow-based food critic, is quoted as saying that McDonald's and Pizza Hut changed the restaurant industry in Russia. That's when burgers and pizza were introduced to the Soviet people. The opening of these two restaurants did lead to more Western-type restaurants, and the novelty of the food and the soft drinks are recalled with fondness by a number of people who were there 30 years ago, including a na- woman named Kasina or Senya Oskina, who bought a Big Mac, saved the box, and would clean it and reuse it for years afterward, just to hold her lunch in. Pizza Hut would come later, as I mentioned in the historical rundown there, and while it was also extremely popular to the point where there were more people in line than the restaurant could produce pizzas, a UPI story from 1990 has a customer leaving the restaurant feeling a little unimpressed. My feelings are complicated. After waiting five and a half hours to get in, said Andre Kolosov as he finished off a pizza and soft drinks with four friends, I don't think it was worth it. And he wasn't the only one. As the UPI story says, most of the several hundred customers waiting in line outside said they came mostly out of curiosity and would not be willing to wait as long a second time. Besides the wait, it is not cheap, said Vadim Maximov as he neared the entrance after sharing a four-hour wait with his friends. I came because it was the first time it is open. We will see. Others seem more resigned to the queue. We are used to waiting in lines, one woman said. It's something of a national sport. I'm actually laughing at that, um, especially somebody who's been to Disney World as much as I have in recent years. Um, and also, if you're laughing at, like, look at these fools waiting in line for something that long, and you are my age, um, and you waited in line for the Phantom Menace, yeah. Uh, anyway, so it is It is kind of funny. And it's not just funny because what she said about waiting in line being a national sport. If I'm being honest, I find it kind of funny because Pizza Hut is actually something that I would have like been really curious about when I was the age I was, this was happening because I never ate Pizza Hut until I went to college. I, I grew up on Long Island. There's Pizza Hut restaurants there, but not around me. So, you know, um, you know, delivery pizza was not like Domino's. I got a little bit of Domino's in high school, but for the most part, um, it was, it was like local places. Still, between the big three uh, pizza delivery companies, Pizza Hut, I think is the best one, but you know, not that my choice in chain restaurant pizza has anything to do with the end of the Soviet Union, but I can relate. I don't know. Anyway, this is an indicator of sea change. Or perhaps to quote the Scorpions, the winds of change. Which takes me into my next part of this segment, American bands and pop stars coming to perform in Russia in the mid-80s. Being a Long Islander, I have to delve into Billy Joel's 1987 Russia tour. Flying high in the success of three big releases, 1983's An Innocent Man, 86's The Bridge, and The Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2 album, he planned a tour of the Soviet Union. Now, while other artists had played in Russia before, this was one of the first large-scale concerts inside the USSR, and accounts of Joel's rather energetic concerts mention that the crowd was not always quick to return the same energy, and security officers acted a little too strict, removing anyone who was becoming remotely unruly. 
The concerts were televised throughout the country, which is something that had never happened before in the Soviet Union. And while the financial result was not particularly good, it's estimated that Joel lost a million dollars on the concert, even though a lot of the costs were offset by the TV broadcast rights. Overall, he performed three shows in Moscow and three in Leningrad, performances that were captured on a live album that came after that came out after the tour. And there was also a documentary and an HBO concert special that was eventually released on video. I remember that a friend of mine had HBO back in the 80s, and he said the special was great. I own the concert album, and it's pretty solid, notably the live version of Angry Young Man and his cover of uh, The Beatles Back in the USSR. Joel is quoted in a 1996 Entertainment Weekly article as feeling that though he lost money on the tour, he was grateful for the chance to bring American music to the Soviet Union on that scale. But there were other compensations, the article says. He helped inspire the cultural exchange that enabled Russian rockers like Boris Grabenshikov and Gorky Park to release albums in America. We felt like our music had a power that transcended what we were aware of before, Joel reflects. Ever since we played Russia, everything has been kind of anticlimactic. We felt we'd hit a pinnacle. In 1989, he would release this album Stormfront which included Leningrad, a song about his friendship with a Russian circus clown named Viktor Razanov. Told through the lens of the parallel lives of Billy and Viktor, the song gives us an overview of the Cold War through their eyes and has them meet at the end, with Viktor having attended six of Billy's Russia concerts. According to Wikipedia, Victor traveled to New York to see Joel play Madison Square Garden in 2015, and Joel played Leningrad at the concert. In typical Billy Joel fashion, it's a song that is not subtle in its message or its sentiment, but it has a very positive message about friendship that can happen across cultures that are supposed to be sworn enemies. So my child and I came to this place to meet him eye to eye and face to face he made my But the most famous song to come out of the era that had to do with reconciliation between Eastern and Western Europe has to be Wind of Change by the Scorpions, a song that was a mega hit for the band when it was released in February of 1991. The Scorpions were part of a multi-metal band concert called the Moscow Music Peace Festival, which was held on August 12th and 13th, 1989, and also featured performances by Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Skid Row, Gorky Park, Cinderella, and Jam. The concert has an infamous history, one that is related in various behind-the-music episodes on VH1 from the late 1990s, as well as in recent podcasts, including the aptly titled Wind of Change, 
a show that sought to find some truth behind an urban legend about the CIA actually writing this Scorpion song. What's not so much an urban legend is that the number of the bands that were faced, that were involved were facing drug charges, and Doc McGee supposedly found a way to get them out of serious trouble by taking them on this diplomatic mission of sorts. Further complicating things was the fact that Bon Jovi was the headliner, and they were a band that was considered more pop than metal by just about anyone else on tour with them. But they were pretty much one of the biggest bands out of all the groups that were touring. Anyway, the festival and this trip to Moscow inspired the Scorpions lead singer Klaus Meine to write Wind of Change, which made its debut on January 20th, 1991, and then went on to sell 14 million copies, becoming the band's biggest hit. It hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100, but moreover became one of a number of songs from around that time to become anthems for change in the region, along with songs like Jesus Jones is Right Now, which was what I used in the trailer for this miniseries. It's hard to understate the feeling of optimism that existed in the very early 1990s between the fall of the wall and the end of the Soviet Union. You have this gargantuan moment, and one that, with some notable exceptions, takes place completely peacefully, something that I'm sure anyone at the beginning of the Cold War would have told you seemed impossible. And while I know that moments of optimism, some gave way to situations that are much more complicated, the energy that came with the fall of the wall was palpable, and the Scorpions were coming from a very real place, being a German band who had obviously grown up in the shadow of the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall. And the success of the song could not be ignored. It is still the biggest selling single by a German band. In 1999, the band played the song at a concert at the Brandenburg Gate in commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the fall of the wall, and it was chosen in 2005 by German network ZDF as the, quote, song of the century. Here's a little bit of it to take us out, and when I get back, I'll be talking about the world of sports in the Cold War, specifically through the 1970s and 1980s. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
I just talked about the impact that popular culture and capitalism had on the later stages of the Soviet Union and how the fall of the wall had an effect on popular music. And while I've already looked at comics and quite a few movies, I wanted to turn my attention to sports because there were times during the Cold War where a playing field or court was where the conflict played itself out. And nowhere was that more evident than in the times when the United States and the Soviet Union went head-to-head in Olympic competition. I will admit that this in and of itself is its own entire podcast. And I say that based on the number of times I've watched Olympic history packages on ABC or NBC or watched a documentary by the late Bud Greenspan. I am a mark for Olympics highlight film. I just discovered that HBO Max has the entire like five hour or 16 days of glory about the 84 Olympics plus another one about Lilyhammer in 94. Um, I'm set for a little while there, so... Anyway, for the sake of this show, I'm going to stick with three specific Olympic moments and games. The 72 Summer Games in Munich, West Germany, the 1980 Lake Placid Winter Games, and the 1984 Summer Games in Los Angeles. I will mention the 1980 Moscow Games because they are important uh, to the whole 1980 uh, Miracle on Ice and Winter Olympics in Lake Placid as well. The 1972 Olympics are known more than anything for the killing of Israeli athletes by PLO terrorists on September 5th. And while the Arab-Israeli conflict is of significant importance to the Middle Eastern history in the late 20th century, as well as United States foreign policy, what more prominently fuels Cold War tensions in Munich is the result of the men's basketball gold medal game. So going into this game, the United States was a dominant force in Olympic men's basketball, despite fielding amateur players. I say not that not to imply that amateur is a pejorative, but to point out that at the time, the IOC prohibited professional athletes from competing at the games, and in some regard, still does. The IOC pro- prohibited professional athletes from pre- competing at the games. The problem for the U.S. was that the Soviets and their Eastern Bloc counterparts found a way around this, which was to draft many of their athletes into the army or other government position while actually having them train for the competition. Because the jobs were shells in a sense. They were being paid to practice, while U.S. athletes would often work day jobs or seek sponsorships to pay for their training and practice time with their own money, or they would be on um, college teams. This made the Soviets a formidable team in any sport and a goliath in hockey, which I will get to later. In the Olympics up till 1972, though, the United States had been the goliath, coming into the gold medal game with a 63-0 record that dated back to the Berlin Olympics of 1936. The Soviets had won silver in 52, 56, 60, 64, and bronze in 68. Now, going into the competition, there were allegations of officiating at the uh, 1972 Games being anti-American. Regardless of any bias, the stage was always set for a competitive final between the U.S. and the Soviets because the Soviets were going after what was the youngest team the Americans had ever fielded. Notably absent from this team, by the way, was UCLA star Bill Walton. He'd been advised to sit out because of his nagging knee problems. Walton also bristled at the idea at the coaching style of legendary Oklahoma State coach and U.S. Olympic coach Hank Ida, telling ESPN in 2004, For the first time in my life, I was exposed to the negative coaching and the berating of players and the foul language and the threatening of people who didn't perform. True to form, the U.S. barreled through the tournament, easily winning each game, but they quickly found themselves facing a Soviet team that was a much bigger challenge than they expected. They trailed by five at halftime and then by 10 with 10 minutes to play. 
Guard Kevin Joyce then led a comeback that pulled them within one point. And with 10 seconds left on the clock, Doug Collins intercepted a pass, took it downtown for a layup, and got fouled hard. At this point, there were three seconds left on the clock. Collins made both free throws, and the Americans went up 50-49. to The Soviets inbounded, and the refs stopped the game with only one second left on the clock, instructing the timekeepers to reset the clock to three seconds. As they said, the Soviets had actually called it timeout during the free throws, and it had gone unacknowledged. The Soviets then inbounded again. The horn blew, and the Americans won. Not exactly. The refs then ordered everyone back onto the court to replay those three seconds, claiming the clock had not been reset properly. On the ensuing play, Alexander Belov caught a full-court pass and scored a winning layup. The U.S. immediately protested, and a five-member jury of the International Basketball Governing Body, FIBA, met and, after heated arguments, voted 3-2 to two to uphold that Soviet victory. In protest, the U.S. team did not show up for the medal ceremony and have not claimed the medals in 48 years since. In 2004, team captain Kenny Davis insisted that not accepting the medal was the right form of protest, especially in light of a decision that seemed to be dictated by Cold War politics, as three judges who voted for the Soviets were from the Eastern Bloc countries. I have placed it in my will that my wife and children can never ever receive that medal from the 72 Olympic Games, he told ESPN. Over the years, appeals have been made to the team to accept the medal from USA Basketball, and after the 2002 Paris figure skating scandal that saw the IOC award co-gold medals because the competition had been fixed, an appeal was filed on their behalf, but it was rejected. Despite this, the period between 1969 and the late 1970s is referred to as détente a significant ease of tensions that came during the Nixon administration and the rule of Leonid Brezhnev in the USSR. Highlights of this era include the SALT treaties as well as the development of trade agreements. This also coincided with the end of the United States' involvement in Vietnam, as well as tensions in the Middle East, which led to two major oil crises in the 1970s. But then comes 1979. This is the year that detente completely falls apart. Earlier in the year, Iran's government is overthrown after a prolonged revolution, and the country becomes a fundamental Islamic republic under Ayatollah Khomeini. The United States' allyship and harboring of the deposed Shah of Iran, combined with our support of Israel, prompts Khomeini to urge his people to demonstrate against the United States, resulting in the storming of the American embassy in Tehran on November 4, 1979, and the beginning of the Iranian hostage crisis, which would end on January 20, 1981, after 444 days, shortly after Ronald Reagan took the oath of office for his first term. Making things even more complicated would be the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan on December 24th. Now, this war would last a little more than nine years and end with a Soviet withdrawal in 1989. If there is an equivalent for it in our history in terms of the cost to the nation and a generation of young men, it is America's involvement in the Vietnam War. The Soviet withdrawal would eventually lead to a prolonged civil war in Afghanistan, which is the root of our involvement in the country since 2001, as well as our conflict with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. All of that is way beyond the scope of this episode as well as the series. So what I'll do is I'll pull us back to 1980 when the Carter administration announced a boycott of the 1980 Soviet Olympics in Moscow as a protest. The Soviets would respond by, by boycotting the 84 Los Angeles Games, but they did not boycott the 1980 Winter Games, which were in Lake Placid, New York. 
As I mentioned earlier, the Soviet hockey team was a massive powerhouse of trained professionals and had dominated Olympic hockey since the 1960s. And the team of college students that was recruited by Herb Brooks was one that, going into the games, was significantly outmatched. This is what would become known as, if you didn't know already, the Miracle on Ice. And honestly, what justice could I possibly do to this in a few minutes of coverage on a podcast episode? It has been discussed, rediscussed, documented, and even fictionalized twice. The first time in 1981, when an ABC TV movie starring Carl Malden as Herb Brooks and Steve Gutenberg as goalie Jim Craig. And in 2004, Disney released Miracle, with Kurt Russell playing Herb Brooks. If I were you, though, I actually would track down the 2001 HBO documentary, Do You Believe in Miracles? It is an outstanding, comprehensive look at the tournament, including interviews with the team and the Soviet players. The game itself was a nail-biter, featuring rough play from the Americans, notably capitalizing on a Soviet mental error in the first period. As the seconds were counting down, the Soviets began to just kind of skate toward the exit. That gave the Americans the opportunity to tie the game at two. Captain Mike Rizzioni would score the go-ahead goal with 10 minutes left to play in the third, and then the U.S. would continue to play an aggressive game, matching the Russians shot for shot and playing hard defense. And then, as the seconds wound down, Al Michaels would make the call that I would say is the, probably the most famous sportscaster call in history, which I started the episode with. Wow. Then, the team had to play Finland for a gold medal, a game they won 4-2 but had to come back to win after being down 2-1 at the beginning of the third period. And I have to take a moment to say that this is where one of my favorite moments of the entire story of the Miracle on Ice comes in. During the intermission after the second period in the game against Finland, Herb Brooks goes into the locker room to talk to the team. And all he says is this, If you lose this game... You'll take it to your f***ing graves. Then he just turns around to leave, and right before he passes through the doorway of the locker room, he says, Your f***ing graves. So they score three goals in the third period, and as time ticks down, we get another classic Al Michaels call. To the gold medal. Four to the gold medal. This impossible dream comes true! So like I said at the top of the episode, I was alive in 1980 but I was two and a half years old, so I don't remember this. But I watched both of these clips in preparation for this episode, and I will fully admit that they choked me up. Because even 40 years later, it's a huge point of pride for us as a country. And I think that just about anyone can agree with that, no matter if you remember it or what your political views are. And I think that is an important point to make, especially because of the way we have seen attempts to co-opt the concept of patriotism or pride in your country about political parties, and have even seen surges of nationalism in recent years. And to be honest with you, I'm not an outwardly expressive patriotic person. Granted, I'm introverted by nature and admit to being a bit on the cynical side of liberal at times. But as I have gotten older, I have seen the ways one can think critically of the United States, but also be a very proud citizen. I won't get into every example I, as I can think of right now. Most of them involve a particular right in the First Amendment. But I can go back to this, and I can say that for all intents and purposes, America was in a pretty awful place at the end of 1979 and the beginning of 1980. Jimmy Carter had an extremely rocky presidency. And while some of that was because of events beyond his control, some of that was because he, he and his administration were in way over their heads. 
That's no reflection on Carter as a man, by the way, especially since he has had a very illustrious post-presidential career in service and diplomacy. But with the Soviets rolling into Afghanistan, the hostage crisis, an oil crisis, and a recession, the term malaise really does fit. And there wasn't really much to be proud of. So along comes this group of college kids, who were great players in their own right, but not Soviet machine great. And well, it's the plot of a Disney movie before Disney made it a movie. I mean, you can't get more like on the nose than The Miracle on Ice. And a quick aside, by the way, I've never seen Miracle. Um, I've heard it's really good, but I'm with this, I'm kind of a documentary snob, so I'm, I'm not really interested in watching it at all. Um, but if you are, check it out. Um, if you have Disney+, Plus, I'm pretty sure it's available there. Anyway, I remember that this was... Uh, an, the, another memory I have of this, and this is really random, but I remember that this was an independent research project option in my US, AP U.S. history class. Um, we had gotten up to, I think, uh, the middle of the 20th century, and we were running out of time before the exam. So my um, U.S. history teacher, my A-push teacher, did what all a lot of AP U.S. history teachers do, which is like, you know, here, um, here's a bunch of topics from the late 20th century research one, or choose your own. And the Miracle on Ice was on it. And I thought it was really, really weird because, you know, this was a hockey game. And uh, But my teacher explained it in a way that was similar to what I'm explaining here. Policy decisions and the machinations of bureaucracy, you know, they can be important to study. But when you honestly think about what can win conflicts, hot or cold, it often comes down to uh, the concept of hearts and minds. Uh, it's a concept that has been used in, since the late 1800s. And yes, it often applies to propaganda. And yes, I may have bought into the propaganda here and the nostalgia surrounding the miracle on ice. But when I see someone put this victory up with such sports moments as Jesse Owens at the 36 Olympics as one of the greatest moments in American Olympics, perhaps in American sports, I fully concur. Because it was not only a victory, it was a victory that was unexpected and meant something. By the way, I did not choose that as my research topic. My research topic was the AIDS crisis. But the pride in our country that happened in 1980 eventually spilled over into 1984, even despite the boycott of the Moscow Olympics and the inability of 1980 Summer Olympic athletes to perform. And 1984's Olympics were held in Los Angeles, and this was where our country was really given a chance to shine. The early 80s, Ronald Reagan's first term, were still rough for the country, especially economically. Without getting too into the details, you have a recession that is already starting to hit in January 1980, followed by a short recovery, and then another economic downturn in 81 to 82. And this one is accompanied by the savings and loan scandal. This saw Reagan's popularity plummet to 35% in January of 1983, and his prospects for re-election were not looking good. Of course, he wins re-election in 1984 on the back of economic recovery that was finally taking hold, as well as uh, kind of a lackluster candidate in Walter Mondale. But in the middle of all this was the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Now, I don't know how much of the success of these games contributed, if at all, towards Reagan's re-election, but the Olympics are a way for a country to show off and show the world what they are all about. And the United States did this wholesale in 1984 with an Olympics that was an enormous success for the city, both image-wise and financially. Because you see, going into 1984, hosting the Olympics was seen as an enormous financial risk. 
1976 Montreal Olympics had been a notorious financial disaster. The 1980 Moscow Olympics were marred by the boycott of the U.S. and 65 other countries, as well as a huge loss of money. Plus, L.A. won the 1984 Games by default. New York and L.A. had been competing to be the American host country in the kind of worldwide bid, and the other finalist, at least according to what I saw on Wikipedia, was Tehran. But uh, the, the revolution of uh, 78 and 79 would, uh, would cause them to pull out of a bid for that. So the bar to get this was low, but the risk was really, really high. And what the organizers accomplished was so successful in terms of cost, revenue, broadcasting, and merchandising that it became a model for other cities who were hosting the games. So in other words, in terms that my fellow geeks can appreciate, the 1984 Summer Olympics were Star Wars. First, Los Angeles's costs to prepare and then host the games were much fewer than the two previous games because they not only used existing facilities in the city, but they used corporate sponsorship to pay for new ones. The Olympic Committee also struck a huge deal for ABC to carry the games on television, something that NBC would pick up and run with starting in 1988, and even today pays an enormous amount of money for its Olympics programming. What also helped was the enormous amount of marketing and advertising that not only brought about interest in the games, but also hyped them as they were going. You still see this in, in today with the amount of Olympic-themed television commercials that air during competition year or during the broadcast. After all, while the United States doesn't host the games, they can still advertise how much they support Team USA. There were a number of commercials that aired in 1984 of different types, including this M&M's commercial that incorporated animated M&M's with live-action footage of people eating M&M's. It's a proud Olympic day for the athletes in L.A. And M&M's chocolate candies will be there. Those colorful candy shells, they're wearing a part of all the fun and sharing. Cause the milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand. All the world loves M&M's, an Olympic world of fun for everyone. M&M's chocolate candies, official snack food of the 1984 Olympics. The milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand. And this one from McDonald's. Now you can compete in the Olympics too. Play McDonald's, when the U.S. wins, you win Olympic games and win up to $10,000 instantly. Or keep your cards and when the U.S. wins your event, you win a Big Mac, regular fries, or a Coca-Cola. So go to McDonald's and get your game cards today because when the U.S. wins, you win. Now, I'm going to tangent just a little bit here because this is one of the more now infamous promotions of the games, and it makes for a bit of trivia. So the idea here is that when you go into McDonald's, you claim a free Big Mac if the U.S. won gold in an event if you redeemed a scratch-off coupon. Well, this promotion was successful for customers <laughs> because the Olympics wound up being successful for the United States. The Soviet boycott, which which actually was not announced until like a couple of months before the games. So that's also really important to note. It's not like in 1981, the Soviets turned around and said, okay, now we're boycotting the Olympics. They, they were in it up until a point. So anyway, the U.S. goes on to win 174 medals and 83 of them are gold. And according to an August 10th, 1984 article, 
uh, the New York Times. Some of McDonald's 6,600 domestic outlets have reportedly run short of Big Macs. The company denies any problems with supplies, but admits there's been a real gold rush at McDonald's. <sighs> the article then goes into speculation as to how much money McDonald's spent on advertising and Olympic sponsorships in 1984, noting that it spent $190.8 million on marketing in 1983. At the time, McDonald's said that the promotion was successful because it brought more people into the restaurant, and they also said something about more people getting interested in more niche sports like Greco-Roman wrestling. But that may have been a PR smokescreen, especially since the Internet's general consensus is that this thing was a disaster, an idea that's somewhat fueled by the way it was parodied on the Simpsons episode Lisa's First Word. Welcome back to the final day of this, the 23rd Olympiad, brought to you by Krusty Burger. You piggle of pigs! <laughs> I personally am going to spit in every 50th burger. I like those odds. In a moment, we'll look at the courageous Korean gymnast, Kim Hwang, who made a perfect dismount on what was later revealed to be a broken leg. <laughs> Ouch! But first, let's go to the boxing venue. Please, 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 please. The American Trederick Tatum does a triumphant turkey trot over the supine sweep. One's thoughts turn to Alexander of Macedon's victory at Granicus and Issus. USA! 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 Carl Lewis, I could kiss you! Mwah! I'm skeptical of this viewpoint. I mean, as funny as that Simpsons bit is, and I say this because this is one of those items on the internet that is tough to verify, and sites like Crack.com make it out to seem like it was new Coke. So I did a little digging to see if it was really as bad as, it, as it's made out to be, and I was able to find a dissertation by Joshua Leiser of UC Riverside titled L.A. in the 1984 Olympic Games, Cultural Commodification, Corporate Sponsorship, and the Cold War. It's a few hundred pages, and even though I skimmed bits and pieces of it for a full episode, I found it so interesting that I might read it in full. What he mentions about McDonald's as a corporate sponsor is that they spent $4 million to be a primary sponsor of the games, $3 million to help construct the swim stadium at USC, and $32 million on ads. He then notes of the If the U.S. Wins, You Win promotion, the results cost McDonald's twice what they anticipated in giveaway cost. However, their losses were not costly enough to discourage the company from running the same promotion during the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. And I will also note that McDonald's also ran the promotion in 1996 for the Atlanta Olympics. And the success of the American athletes, even with the Eastern Bloc boycott, cannot be denied. Some of the athletes at the Games who won for the United States would go on to become synonymous with American success for years after, reaching the level of fame that pro basketball, baseball, or football stars achieve. Carl Lewis tied Jesse Owens' record of four gold medals and would go on to compete in three more Olympic Games before finally retiring after 1996. Edwin Moses, who had won gold in 1976 and lost out on a chance to repeat in 1980, won gold again in the hurdles. Bobby Knight coached men's basketball, featuring future stars Chris Mullen, Patrick Ewing, and Michael Jordan, who were all part of the 1992 Dream Team. 
Baseball, a demonstration sport in 1984, featured a U.S. team that had future MLB stars Will Clark, B.J. Serhoff, Barry Larkin, and Mark McGuire. In fact, I believe that tops 85 set 1984 Olympics McGuire card was valuable at one point because it's not technically a rookie card, but it's kind of a rookie card. I don't know. I never had it. And even if I did, it probably would have gotten beat up. Anyway, the U.S. men's gymnastics team won the team gold, an achievement that led us to Jim Cotta. Greg Louganis won two gold medals in diving. And then there's the most notable athlete at the 1984 Olympics from the United States, Mary Lou Retton. Retton would be the first American female gymnast to win the all-around competition. Moreover, she won it by narrowly beating Ekaterina Sabo of Romania by 0.05 points. Romania had been one of the only Eastern Bloc countries to actually attend the Games, and this win put Retton in the stratosphere. She was Sports Illustrated's Sportswoman of the Year, became the first ever female athlete to appear on a Wheaties box, and really became America's sweetheart, going on to appear in commercials and all over television. The success of the athletes capped off the plans of future MLB commissioner and then head of the LA Olympic Organizing Committee, Peter Uberoth, who had pushed for the corporate sponsorship and branding, something that included merchandising. To help brand the LA Games, Uberoth hired Robert Janney from Disney, who had two years earlier been instrumental in the opening of Epcot Center. This is why, if you search for 1984 Summer Olympics merchandise on eBay, you find a lot of souvenirs that you would find at theme parks at the time, such as t-shirts, posters, jackets, tote bags, ashtrays, commemorative spoons, and porcelain bells, among other things. Okay, I don't know what it is about the souvenir bells, honestly. My grandmother did have a collection of commemorative spoons, though, and any child who attended elementary school during the 80s knows that ashtrays were an important household accessory. Heck, 80s elementary school art classes were practically a cottage industry for ashtrays. Anyway, many of the souvenirs featured the ubiquitous red, white, and blue Stars in Motion logo, which was designed by the late Robert Runyon, a giant in advertising. Others featured the game's official mascot, Sam the Olympic Eagle, a bald eagle who wore a red shirt, a red and white striped bow tie, and stars and stripes hat. And all of this, Ubrov's grand plan, worked. The corporate sponsorship strategies lowered LA's cost. The committee's plan to donate $3,000 to charity per mile of the torch relay resulted in an overall $10 million in donations. And the 10-week LA Olympic Arts Festival that preceded the opening ceremonies was a positive showcase for the host city. All in all, the 1984 Summer Olympics made $250 million in profit. But what does this have to do with the Cold War? Well, one thing that I mentioned in the first segment of this episode was how American capitalism and culture was just as important to the end of the Cold War as was displays of military might or political pressure. And these games epitomized that even before they started, especially in a Bud Light ad entitled Heartland. Suppose that's him? Don't know who else would be out this early. For the Caldwells, early morning's the best time to get things done. And, times being what they are, not much would make them shut down, even for a few minutes. But this summer of 1984, the Caldwells have shut down to see something they'll most likely never see again.
host the games this summer, let's hope we all learn that the true measure of the Olympics is not in the winning, but discovering the best in all of us. The ad I just played features two farmers in a bucolic setting stopping their morning work to stand with reverence as a runner bearing the Olympic torch passes by. It's a simple ad, but it's incredibly effective at getting across both the anticipation for the games and the national pride that came with them. In his dissertation, which I mentioned earlier, Dr. Leiser mentions that the ad won a Clio and actually convinced much of the country that Anheuser-Busch was the sponsor for the torch relay and not the torch relay's actual sponsor, AT&T. But most importantly was how this ad, its message, and the success of the Olympic Games may have contributed to Ronald Reagan's re-election in 1984. The Heartland ad has a cinematic soft feel lens with a calm, bright, open 80s look to it. Not so much the sheen you'd see on like a Madonna video, but like we've let more light in the room. That's America. And if you know 1984 and you know Ronald Reagan, you know where I'm going with this. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history with interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980. Nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And, under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder, and stronger, and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were, less than four short years ago? In the dissertation that I've mentioned, Dr. Leiser, who is, a, who is now the social sciences chair at Oxnard College in California, goes into great detail as to what he calls the, quote, soft power of sports and notes how Reagan helped celebrate the Olympic athletes, saying, quote, throughout the games, I couldn't help but think that if the people of the world judged Americans by what they saw of you, then they think Americans, well, they're generous and full of serious effort. They're full of high spirits. They're motivated by all the best things. They're truly a nation of champions. Leiser points out that this how this sums up the importance of hosting the games, national pride, especially halfway through a decade that began so darkly. He also notes that Reagan capitalized on the Olympic spirit, saying the campaign used the Olympic footage and Reagan, quote, used the boycott to change the campaign. Reagan's landslide victory over Walter Mondale in November 1984 prompted House Speaker Tip O'Neill to tell the president, quote, in my 50 years of public life, I've never seen a man more popular than you with the American people. And I am admittedly cherry-picking from Leiser's dissertation because I didn't have time to read all of it, even though I might because it seems fascinating. I'll link to it in the show notes if you're interested in, in going through it. But it really does support the point I'm making here, which is that the Morning in America ad and the Morning in America campaign used our success to um, his advantage. It's, well, I'd say it's cynical if I didn't think it was absolutely brilliant. And this is coming from me, who has voted straight Democrat since I was legally allowed to do so. 
Even I felt some comfort after watching that commercial and can totally see why people were influenced by that ad campaign to vote for him. It puts country and pride in the country over the man running, even though you are supposed to associate the man running with that pride. And it says flat out, things are going well, so let's keep going. And the 1984 Olympics feel the same way. We're proud to be here. We're proud to be the hosts. And not only that, we're proud to win. Moreover, the Soviets look bitter and petty in their desire to avoid competing. I could go on even more about the 1984 Olympics, but in the interest of time, I will stop here and maybe commit to looking at them another day, perhaps through the lens of of the soundtrack album. I played Loverboy's track, Nothing's Gonna Stop You Now, at the top of the show, and at the beginning of this segment played John Williams' Olympic fanfare and theme, which is one of my favorite John Williams pieces. That album also features Leo Arnaud's Bugler's Dream and songs by Christopher Cross, Toto, Giorgio Marauder, Foreigner, Quincy Jones, Herbie Hancock, Philip Glass, and the one I'm going to play us out with, Power, by Bill Conti, which was meant as a theme for weightlifting and power sports. And honestly, considering Bill Conti's most famous composition is Gonna Fly Now, the theme from Rocky, this is a good fit. In later episodes, I'll cover the 1980s more extensively. You'll hear me talk about the lowest points and how the threat of nuclear war was as looming as it had been in the 1950s. But you'll also hear me talk about how our popular culture won the Cold War, from the rah-rah American movies that ranged from patriotic to downright jingoistic in the mid-80s, to the the but-the-Russians-are-our-friends-now trend that we would see later in the decade. Because the idea of America, our image, was vital to winning the Cold War. We needed to make that appeal to the world and to ourselves. It's all propaganda, I admit. But the effectiveness of the more ideal images as opposed to the more aggressive ones cannot be overstated. I'll put links to a number of things I referenced in this episode into the show notes. Um, I have a little bit of feedback um, by way of a link that was sent to me. Uh, Ranger Gord sent me this link back in May, and it's a link to a YouTube video by uh, the Canadian History EHX podcast. And uh, this particular video talks about some of the Canadian history of the Cold War. The tag for it reads, In the late 1950s and early 1960s, the Canadian government initiated Project Ease, a secret program to build a series of government bunkers to protect officials in case of a nuclear attack. From the municipal level to the federal level, these shelters were meant to ensure uh, the continuity of government. The largest by far was was the Dyfin Bunker outside Ottawa, a four-story underground structure meant to withstand a five-megaton nuclear strike. It came complete with everything the government needed, housed 565 people, and even had a studio for the CBC. And uh, that's the focus of that podcast episode that's on um, YouTube there. And Ranger Gord says, wonderful series on the Cold War, by the way. I grew up on the Canadian-U.S. border. I knew where all the IF... I knew where all of the ICBM silos were. If anyone pushed the button, they would have been flying over my head to and from Siberia. So that is fascinating. I did not grow up near anything like that, but I did grow up uh, near um, like Brookhaven Labs and some places that were and uh, that were involved in the defense contracting industry and Grumman and companies like that. So like you know the development of like the F fourteen and and, and stuff like that was was vital to like where I lived on Long Island. So anyway, thank you very much for the feedback. Um, 
and uh, go check that out, that, that Canadian History Podcast episode that uh, Gord sent me from uh, the YouTube link. I'll, I'll throw it into the show notes, like I said. Um, I'd love to hear more of, uh, feedback from everybody, so feel free to email me or, or drop a comment on Facebook or, or what have you, and uh, I will drop it into a future episode. As for me, I will be back in three months, and this time I promise, hopefully, with Leyland, Andrew Leyland, and we're going to look at James Bond. And, and our focus is going to be on two uh, films. One, uh, the Sean Connery film from Russia with Love, and the other one, the Roger Moore film, The Spy Who Loved Me. Although we will have a general conversation about Bond himself as well. Until then, don't forget to check out the site for the show notes. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. This has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this miniseries and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold War.